Young, and the examiner of the God teaches us concerning the first commandment for that purpose. We'll also read what we confess together about that commandment in verse 34, question and answer 94 and 95, where we confess the following. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, submit to Him with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do this thing against his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Joshua said 
to the people after they had conquered Canaan at the end of his life. In Joshua 24, read what how he warned the people. He said to them, Fear the Lord and put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. The worship of idols was very tempting for the Israelites. After all, everyone around them was doing it. In Egypt, they were doing it. In the land of Mesopotamia, where Father Abraham came from, and in the land of Canaan, the place to which God was leading them. It was part of their culture, even part of their history. Abraham and his family served idols. Think of Jacob. When Jacob left Padan Aram, he left his uncle Laban to go back to Canaan. He took his wives with them. Their, his wives took their idols along with them back to Canaan. Idol worship was part of their culture. They lived in it. And so it shouldn't be a complete surprise that soon after God gave his law to them at Mount Sinai, the Israelites were dancing around the golden calf. And centuries later, they, they worshipped the golden calves that Jeroboam set up in Dan and, and Bethel. Israel longed for the idol worship they had left behind. They wanted to be part of the culture, but it also was in their hearts. It was a constant snare to them. It, it, it pulled at their heartstrings. It lured them. It beckoned to them. And that's why God warned them, You shall have no other gods before me. They were a redeemed people. They were not allowed to go back to that. They were not allowed to go back to that kind of life. So the Lord said, I am the Lord your God. You are now mine. Well, that same attraction that lured the people of Israel away from the one true God, that still lives in the hearts of God's people today. And we might not serve carved images. We might not actually get down on our knees before an image after all we're much more sophisticated than that. We, we might not physically bow down, but idol worship is still real. Because inside of us, in our heart, we bow down to the gods that we set up in our own minds. For whenever we trust in something other than God, Whenever our happiness depends on something or someone other than God, we are bowing down to an idol. And since we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, God warns us, don't go there. Don't go back there to that way of life. And there's a reason for this. God gave his warning to Israel because of where they, they were going. That was one of the reasons. They were on their way to Canaan. A land of, of pagan tribes, Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites. These people served idols. And that's where Israel was going. And like they like the Egyptians, they worshipped false gods, and the Lord warned Israel. He said to them, When you arrive in Canaan, you have to destroy all of those false gods and all the high places, all those places of worship, and the Asherah poles. They are not to be used in worship. You must worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. And the Lord knows the danger that and the temptation that lives in the hearts of His own people. And that's why He gave them this warning: "You shall have no other gods before Me." 
And the history of God's people proves that this was a necessary warning. And that that warning remains necessary. Think of what we read in Jeremiah. In chapter 2, therefore, compares his relationship with Israel to a marriage. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he describes the honeymoon phase, the devotion of their youth, their love as a bride, when they follow the Lord into the wilderness. But how soon after that didn't Israel forsake the Lord? And many times again, over the centuries, they, they served other gods. And even after the Lord brought them to a land full of plenty to enjoy its fruits, Israel defiled the land by serving other gods. For congregation today, the Lord our God also warns us not to serve other gods. Not only because he doesn't want us to go back to a pagan way of life, but also because of where we are going. As sons and daughters of God, we have an inheritance, an inheritance that is already ours. Our, our future is secure, because when God gives you something, you know that it's going to happen. When the Lord said to the, called the Israelites to go to Canaan, he didn't say, I, I might give you that land if you're successful. No, he says, I am giving you that land. So when they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, that inheritance was secure. It was theirs already. So the warning of the first commandment includes the warning not to jeopardize our inheritance by turning to other gods. And we know what happened to many Israelites on their way to Canaan. Thousands of them didn't make it. They died in the wilderness because of rebellion. And we know what happened to Israel and Judah during the days of the prophet Jeremiah. They were destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple of Solomon was destroyed. And the remnant of the people were carried off into exile, far away from their inheritance, because they had forsaken the Lord and worshipped other gods. Congregation, we need to keep in mind that the first commandment is not a commandment that's first of all given to pagans, but it's given to God's common people. First commandment is a loving warning from our covenant God, from our Redeemer, who wants to keep us safe so that we will love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so that we will receive our inheritance. That's why He gives us this commandment. But what exactly does it mean you shall have no other gods before me? It means more than you shall not make a graven image, or you shall not bow down to such an image. It means that we may not even think about making other gods. It means that we may not make up idols in our minds, make up things in our minds that take the place of God in our life. God is God alone and there is no creature in heaven or on earth that is worthy of being the number one person in your life. Serving anyone or anything other than God is senseless and useless and self-destructive. That's why we confess in this Lord's day that for the sake of my very salvation I must avoid 
and fleeing all idolatry, and witchcraft and superstition and prayer to saints or other creatures. You can tell from the language here that these things were a big deal when the Catechism was written in the 16th century. And perhaps things like witchcraft and superstition and prayer to saints is not one of a very big issue in our congregation, but at the same time we have to be aware that, that the motivation to trust such idols still exists. And the First Amendment tells us there, there's no room in our life for divided loyalty. There, be, there may be nothing in our life that distracts us or replaces God and distracts us from serving God. We may not trust in anything in addition to Him. We must expect all good from Him alone, and that includes our, our happiness, our contentment, and our joy. You might ask, well, what does that have to do with serving other gods? Well, as I mentioned already, idols are things that you make up in your mind. Think of how a pagan makes, makes an idol. Before he actually carves an image, he has to have a picture in his mind of what that idol looks like. Well, we, we bow down to gods that we set up in our own minds. Whenever we seek our happiness, our fulfillment, our joy, our contentment in certain thoughts or desires or ideals, we are setting up an idol for ourselves. And when we pursue those thoughts or ideals in order to achieve happiness, then we are bowing down to that idol. We are seeking our happiness and contentment in something apart from God. And that is idolatry. For example, when your happiness depends on the approval of others instead of your identity in Christ, you are setting up an idol for yourself. Or whatever your feelings of unhappiness or loneliness or frustration drives you to the fridge for comfort food instead of to the God of all comfort, you have set up an idol for yourself. When you want to impress your friends by telling a dirty joke, or you go along with doing something wicked because you want their approval, then you are setting up an idol for yourself because the, the approval of your friends means more to you than the approval of God. And that is idolatry. When you bully someone at school because that makes you feel powerful or better about yourself, you are setting yourself up as an idol. When other people's opinions about you become more important than God's opinion about you, you have made people big and God small. And that, again, is a sin against the first commandment. We confess that idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God. And we so easily fall into that trap. That's what Eve did. When she trusted that the fruit of that forbidden tree would give her wisdom, instead of trusting in the wisdom of God. That's what the people of Israel did when they complained about the manna in the wilderness. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 11. Oh, we wish we had meat to eat. Think back to what we had in Egypt. There we had fish, 
at full cost, and cucumbers and melons and leeks. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all, just this manna to look at. Well, that's a picture of idolatry. I can't be happy unless I have fish and melons and cucumbers. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's exactly what they were saying. And are we any different? I can't be happy unless I have a boyfriend or a bigger house. I can't be happy unless the Lord removes this irritation from my life. Making created things the source of our contempt. That's idolatry. And of course, there's nothing wrong with wanting fish or cucumbers or melons or a boyfriend or a bigger house. But if that becomes the means for our happiness and contentment, even though God perhaps doesn't choose to give that to you, then we are making an idol of created things. We are giving those things then a place in our life that only God is allowed to have. So if there is something in your life other than God that rules your motives and your happiness and your contentment, then you have made that something into an idol. And idols never satisfy. Baal and Zeus, they could never give their worshippers whatever those worshippers desired. And alcohol and drugs and pornography, that just gives you a short-term boost. But then, tomorrow your wallet will be empty and your marriage will be on the rocks. And the same is true for so many other things that we set up as idols in our life. If we think, I can only be happy if I have this, or if that is removed from my life, and our happy, we base our happiness on things that perish. God warns in this commandment, I am the Lord your God, don't go there. Don't go back to those things. And that's what the law reminds us of. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you or redeemed you from slavery. And the Lord said this to people who were idolaters. He said this to people who had succumbed to the temptation of worshiping idols in Egypt. And today he says the same thing to his covenant people who, who at heart are no better than the people of Israel. We're not any better than they were. The congregation, the fact that the Lord says this to us, that's evidence of his grace. He makes a bond of love with undeserving idolaters. He even said to those people of Israel and Judah who had been so faithless to him, he said, Return to me, Jeremiah chapter 3. I will no longer look on you in anger, because I am a merciful God, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever, only acknowledge your guilt and return to me. And I'm sure we all know and understand that we do not serve the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. None of us do that. We are not wholly devoted to the Lord as we ought to be. We don't serve Him with single-minded dedication. None of us do. And yet the Lord comes to us and speaks to us with His law. 
and he establishes his covenant with us just as he did with Israel. And he says, I am the Lord your God. You people who are idolaters at heart, I am your God. And he says, I want you to find in me everything that you need. Because I can't be everything for you. Find your happiness and your joy in me and in my son Jesus Christ. And just as he called unfaithful Judah back to himself, the Lord continues to call us to himself with this verse to them. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the Lord's gracious call to us and reminder to us of who he is and what kind of a relationship we have with him. So there is no need for us to seek our happiness or fulfillment in anything else besides him. And the reason this is true is because our identity is found in him, the one who says, I am your God. The one who redeems his people, the one who sent his son into this world, to die for idolatrous people. He redeemed Israel from Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. He fed them with manna. They were safe with him. So how should they respond? We're sick of this manna. Should we complain? We would rather eat meat and leek in Egypt than be fed with bread from heaven. Would it be right for Israel to look for their sense of self-worth in the meals that they eat? You know the answer. What about us? How should we respond to this God? This God who sent His Son into this world to redeem us, who cares for us and gives us everything that we need, the God with whom we are safe forever because we have a guaranteed inheritance with him, how should we respond? I can't be happy unless I get this, or unless this is removed from my life. I refuse to be happy unless the Lord is me. And you name it. I'm sure you can think of examples for yourself. We all know the answer to what our response should be. Congregation, the Lord offered his only son to make us his people. And his son was tempted in the wilderness to bow the knee to Satan, to make created things more important than the Creator. But he did not seek his happiness or his joy in those things. Instead, he sought his happiness in doing the will of his Father in heaven. And even though he was rejected by his father and his father's wrath was poured on him, he trusted his father for his happiness and for his well-being and for his eternity. Even while he hung on the cross, he trusted his father for everything he needed. By faith in him, his obedience righteousness becomes ours congregation and that is the root and the ground of our happiness and contentment.
The only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to my faithful Savior. And if that is true, then I don't have to seek my comfort or my well-being in anything else. Not in the approval of my peers, not in the size of my bank account, or even my health. And if Jesus is your only comfort in life and death, then you don't have to try and force things to go your own way. And then we don't have to sulk and mope or drown ourselves in self-pity because we don't get what we want. Rather, our comfort and our joy lies in knowing the only true God saves us and redeems us and preserves us. The God who gives us everything that we need and who promises to avert all evil and even turn it to our good. Our covenant God, our Father in Jesus Christ, whom we owe everything, our trust, our love, our submission, and our fear and our honor and we owe this to him with undivided loyalty. And of course, in this life, we realize, we experience that we can't do this perfectly. And that can sometimes be a cause for frustration and disappointment. Right? We want to serve God. And we wish we could do it better. And we, and we know and we experience that that idolatry that lies so close to our hearts. How often don't we try and find our contentment in something? Something God created instead of Him alone. And we wish we could make more progress in serving God wholeheartedly. Well, we find the answer to that in our confession as well tells us that we must not only avoid certain things, but that we must rightly come to know God our Creator, as we heard this morning. That's what true wisdom is. To fear and know the Lord. That's the key to living for God. Because when our mind is filled with the knowledge of God and what He has done and what Christ has done, there is going to be less room for being trying to be content with other things. When our minds are filled with who God is, there will be less room for idols. So the first commandment calls us to turn to the Lord, to repent from idolatry and focus on Him. Fill your heart and your mind with who He is and with His Word and what He tells you. Be familiar with the great deeds of His great deeds of salvation. Know the Bible and know your church history. Know what He has done for you continues to do for you. That's, that's the way to keep your mind off of creative things as the source of your happiness and contentment. You are God's child and He delights in you. He even makes a covenant with you. And He comes to you and says, I am your God. In spite of the fact that He knows that you still struggle with idolatry. He delights in his people. Why? Because he sent his son to die for them. And in Christ, he delights in who you are. 
You delight in what he has done for you. And so we may in turn delight in him and what he has done for us. Confident that he will supply us with everything that we need for body and soul in this life and in the next. So brothers and sisters, remember the Redeemer. Remember what God has done for you. Remember what he has done for you in Christ. And remember that he has poured out his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, on the church. He gives you his Spirit so that you can direct your focus on your Father in heaven. May God encourage every one of us in our daily life, every day, to seek and serve the living God who loves us. Amen. Mm-hmm.